welcome to L&D Behind the Curtain, our bi-weekly podcast interviewing the best and brightest uh, from the L&D and training sectors. We've created this podcast to find the key learnings from the backgrounds and experiences of these people that we're interviewing. Nathan and I are both seasoned interviewers from different angles. Uh, I run Bolt Jobs, which is a jobs platform for the L&D and training sector. So I'll always be looking at things from the careers angle. Nathan's a little bit different. He, he has his training video production company um, and he's my partner on this show. So how are you doing this week, Nathan? Yeah, good. I think you're not the only one that's ever said that I'm a bit different, Alex. So um, <laughs> I'll take that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been it's great. I mean, this is our second episode. Um, I know it's early days, but we've both had some great feedback and, and we really appreciate anyone that's got in touch and, and DM'd us on LinkedIn or emailed us. We've had quite a few and she's kind of makes it all worthwhile really and and knowing that people are listening and actually enjoying it is absolutely fantastic uh, i just want to do a quick shout out to ask people if they can spare five minutes to sort of review and rate and share our podcast wherever possible and we've got a lot of linkedin content that supports this as well video content that again if you can uh, share and like and comment and, and and interact with generally would be much appreciated so um again thank you very much it really has been great to see the first episode go down so well and today we've got a guest from the aviation sector, which is a sector that obviously is going through a lot of challenges. Brendan Noonan is a vastly experienced L&D leader. Keep an ear out for how closely Brendan equates L&D strategy with strong commercial outcomes. Um, so with his illustrious career, um, he just delivers during this interview knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb. Uh, there's so many takeaways from this interview. So without further ado, let's hear from Brendan. So as always, we like to get to know a bit about our guests' backgrounds. So tell us how you got into the travel industry initially. I think it was with Thomas Cook, wasn't it? Yeah, actually, it was quite a funny story, really. My, my father was uh, very big into mechanics. He was a very good uh, engineer, and he used to come home from work every day covered in oil. And when I was talking to my mother about what I wanted to do for a career, she said, I don't care what job you do, you have to do it in an office. So um, I went to the careers master and said to him, look, I want to work with either engines or boats, something mechanical, and I'll do it from an office. So he said, okay, maybe what we could do is get you a job in a boat architect. So I thought, well, that could be interesting. And he said, while we're on the topic of boats, how about working for Sealink? And I said, I have no interest whatsoever in Sealink. He said, while we're on the topic of Sealink, how would you like to work for Thomas Cook Travel? I said, Thomas Cook Travel, why do you want to work for them? And the only place that they fixed me up with an interview was Thomas Cook. So I think they obviously had a, a bit of encouragement from the travel business to try and get as many people as possible. <laughs> so my first job was to go and work in Thomas Cook headquarters, which in those days was in um, 45 Barclay Street in um, central London, which was great. It was a seven-story block. And I was lucky enough that they put me into management secretariat, which was looking after the senior management team of the Thomas Cook group um, as an office boy, um, which at the time didn't mean much to me. Um, but what was really interesting is that was around the time that it was a major catastrophe in the travel business when Courtline, very big tour operator, collapsed for various reasons. And then suddenly everybody was panicking about the travel trade. But Thomas Cook came up with this brilliant idea of a 24-hour money-back guarantee. And I was given a job to go around to the different uh, tour operators and get them to sign the contracts and bring them back to Thomas Cook. It never dawned on me what was happening, really. But then later when I look back, I think, wow, 
And it was a, a, a massive um, marketing strategy for Thomas Cook. It really took him into the stratosphere. No other agent could match it. So that kind of kept Thomas Cook going for a few years. That was more sales focused, right? You, you then make the move uh, across to, I believe, Greek Air and then Golf. What, what happened with Thomas Cook is you did a year with this group in head office and then they gave you a choice of did you want to go into management, did you want to go into cargo, did you want to go into um, business travel, retail or whatever. Um, at the time, they decided to move the headquarters up to Peterborough and they took us all up there to have a look round. And we were all young guys. This wasn't our scene. It just it wasn't going to be the way it was. But as the guy said to me, look, just go on the tour. You can have a few beers and it's a good day out and then come back and say, no, you're not interested. So then they put me into the retail division working in um, the city of London, which was absolutely fascinating because you dealt with all the top companies. And Thomas Cook was owned by Midland Bank. And I remember sending people all over the world to places I'd never seen or heard of from South America to Africa to the Far East. So, you know, generally my knowledge grew from there. Um, and then I joined the business travel division. And what was interesting is in that situation, um, the branch I was in was the first one in the UK to take on automated reservations. So in the past, you rang up airlines and you made reservations. It used to take so much time. But uh, British Airways agreed that they would put in this Travicom system into our office and see how it worked. And if it was successful, then it would spread all over the UK. And today, no travel agent rings an airline who will work on the systems. And that's where it started in, in a, an office that I worked in. So that, that was quite exciting. And that led me into the next phase, because what happened is because the system was based around British Airways BAB system, uh, Olympic Airways had bought that system, but they needed somebody to help them migrate onto the system. So they said, look, you've worked with it. Come over and help us to, to migrate onto the system. So I spent the next two years with them doing it. And it was a lot of fun. And hence got into the airline game where you've been ever since. Yeah, that, then, that was the beginning of the aviation side of it. And then I, after that, I joined um, Gulf Air, which at the time was the best airline in the world. And you couldn't get into Gulf Air unless you know fairly well connected or you were really good. So I took the step across into Gulf Air and it was just amazing. So with them, I worked in London for six years. And then I attended a training program one day, all about customer service. And part of the training program was to talk about the job we did. So at the time I was working in sales, which was covering the southeast of England and promoting Gulf Air to the travel agents and the commercial houses and taking trips down to the Gulf, which which were amazing. Um, and when I did the presentation, the guy that was running the program said, wow, he says, you should join the training department. You know, I can see great opportunity for you here. And I said, no, I don't go to training department. I, I like what I do. But I had a thought, talk with my wife about it. And I said, how do you fancy going out to the Middle East for a couple of years? And she said, well, let's give it a go. So that was the beginning where I went out to Bahrain. Um, and 28 years later, <laughs> and I retired, I came back. But obviously, I was backwards and forwards on holidays and everything else. And over that time, you, you know, you moved from a larger you know, airline to a smaller one as well. And do you want to talk about that step? And was that step whilst you're working in, in learning and development as well? Right. So I was in sales initially where they asked me to join the training division of Gulf Air in Bahrain. So I moved out to Bahrain. And they, they had, um, I would say, probably a fleet of about 35 airplanes, not, not big by airline comparisons, but really high quality. And then my job there was to uh, work with a guy who was brilliant, a guy called Mark Turner, and he was my mentor. And Mark was running the customer service training division. So we basically took a program, ran it with all the cabin crew. And then from there, we spread it out into other divisions. 
And then they sent me all over the world running training programs everywhere from Tanzania to Delhi to uh, Cochin, uh, UK, obviously, and other parts of the world. So that's kind of where I got really got into the learning and development division. And then my mentor moved on and then I took over and I was given the task to manage the process. So I did that for another couple of years. And then I got a phone call from a, a new airline that was starting up in Dubai, only had uh, 14 airplanes called Emirates. And I thought, well, they're a bit small, but they asked me to come over and I went over to see them. And I thought if they did, you know, if they can do half of what they promised they're going to do, this could be a really exciting journey. So I took, I took the leap. I went across and it was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. And witnessed a huge amount of growth. Talk about that kind of period and what that must have been like being part of that. Well, I think that the great thing about it at the start, and it was still there midway through it as well, is there was a great feeling of we can do so much. And it was encouraged. It was sort of a real can-do attitude. So I started off in the training division and uh, my claim to fame at the time. Um, we developed a customer service program for the cabin crew, and we ran the program with all the cabin crew that were there at the time. There was 978. I remember the number at that time. There's now nearly 20,000, so big difference. Um, but I ran the program, and then six months later, uh, Emirates got its first Elon of the Year Award for cabin crew. And then I got accolades from the senior management saying, wow, you know, you really helped us here. So that continued for another period of time. But then I was approached by our customer relations department uh, at Emirates at the time to go and work with them. And I thought, well, I'm not sure about that. But what's really funny is people think, oh, there'll be no complaints about Emirates because it's such a good airline. But the reality was, is the better you are, the more complaints you get. <laughs> and complaints about some crazy things as well. But so I worked there for four years. Um, and then I took over a division called Service Audit. And our job was to go and evaluate the products and services of the airline. And um, at the time, there were written reports. Um, there was no mobile phones with cameras in those days. But... A friend of mine who worked in corporate communications, I was down to see him one day. He said, Brendan, I want to show you this. And it was like a brick. It was the first digital camera you put in a floppy disk in the back of it. It was a Sony Macavere. And I said, so I can take pictures anywhere with this? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, can I borrow it? Because I was going out on an audit. So I went out and did a photographic audit from start to finish instead of a really boring report. I produced a report, and then I sent it to my boss saying, what do you think of this? And then he fell off the chair. And then he went to the president of the airline and said, listen, this is what we can do now. Look at this. And he says, wow, I want one of these done every month. I want a copy sent to every senior manager. So we started off doing audits on Emirates, the airline themselves. And then I said, look, why don't we go and look at competitors? So then I was given the task of organizing competitor audits. So we'd go out on different airlines. If they had a new product, we could take pictures of everything, produce a report. It'll come back to the senior management within two weeks. And they could visualize what our competitors were doing and the competitors knew nothing about it. So, so it was fascinating that, you know, being an L&D and then this turned into like a competitor analysis tool. And it's almost yeah. like coming full circle back around to sales in, in one way. One of the things I would honestly say is that um, if you work in learning and development, you really should have some experience of the business. Even if you put yourself into the business maybe for six maybe 12 months, get to understand the business, then you become so good at developing and producing quality learning and development programs because you understand the job. The problem that tends to happen in a lot of organizations is people become very specialized in terms of I'm L&D only and that's all I'm ever going to do. 
I'm not sure that's the right way to go forward. I would honestly say get the business experience because then you can really help the business because there is a disconnect. When you work in L&D, you see the world in one aspect. When you work in the business, you see it in a completely different aspect. Put those together. Wow, you've really got something good. And as you climbed the L&D kind of ladder, then is that something you looked for in the people that you brought on board? The fact that they perhaps had been at the company in different departments and, and developed elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, even, even if I, well, in most cases, you don't choose the team. The team's already there. So what you have to do is you have to develop that. But what we did tend to do is that where we could, we'd put them into the operation for at least a couple of weeks or a month if we could do it. And we did it on a regular basis then they began to understand some of the unusual problems that people faced and they could relate to that and build a program around to resolve the problems. So you may not be able to put people in there for a long period of time, but if you do it on a fairly frequent basis, well, you know, that, that can make a difference as well. Over your time at Emirates, like joining whilst to a small, how, um, how integral was like L&D and training to the growth over those 20 years? Presumably you came in with a mandate to do things differently to other airlines having, you know, if you're picking up accolades quite quickly as well. Well, um, the, you know, with, with the organisation, success was important and they wanted to be, continue to be successful because there was starting to be new airlines that were coming up to compete with them. So one of the benefits of the audits was that, you know, we had to be as good or better than the other organisations, otherwise we wouldn't be as successful. So that was the benefit of the audit side of it. From the training side of it, what we had to do is make sure that everybody was competent in what they were doing and delivering the optimum service level that we could get out of them in, in, in the jobs that they were doing, and that helped to maintain the reputation of the organisation. Just curious to see what kind of activity you ran there whilst at Emirates. You were there a long time. That that really stands out. That that because um, we're going to come on to something you did a little bit more recently. Uh, but what um, what particularly stands out in terms of the activity? I mean, it sounds like you kind of revolutionised things just with some digital snaps at one point. So you've gone from that to where in terms of kind of developing materials. All right, so once, once I completed my time at the um, service audit side of the business, they then asked me to take over the training division. So the training division consisted of around 200 people, and we looked after the training and development needs of 65,000 people worldwide. So it was, it was quite a big task. Um, so the first thing that I did is, is I thought, you know, we really need to understand what goes on here. So we took a couple of days out and built a strategy for the next five years. So we worked on mission, mission, vision and values. And then everybody was on board of what we were trying to achieve. And then we started to roll out, review all our training programs. We wanted consistency in terms of whatever instructor ran a program. It was irrelevant. The quality would still be the same. That took a lot of work because, you know, uh, trainers can be very, very um, personal about what they do and they want to do it their way not other people's way but we were comfortable with that as long as they covered the topics and made sure that the competencies traveled across to the individuals attending the programs and then over the next four or five years we started to win a lot of awards for our training which was great because i was able to use that to motivate the training team and they were getting quite good at doing great work and i, I think that really helped because that was sort of moving them up another step not because of what I was doing, but because of what they could achieve and it gave them confidence to do it. So we, we did an amazing amount of work all over the world. A lot, a lot of what we did was starting up stations in new, new areas. So a lot of people don't understand, but when an airline starts to fly to another country, they don't just turn up and arrive and everything works. You have a lot of work that goes in prior to that, getting the office set up, getting the staff trained, 
getting the airport sorted out, getting all the um, licenses and everything else approved. So I suppose one of the more dynamic things that I did with the team was um, we were opening up in Kabul. Uh, sorry, no, I'll talk about the first one, which is Baghdad. Baghdad was the first station that we opened where there was a lot of concern from the rest of the team. They're saying, look, we're not happy. And even the wives of these guys were ringing me up saying, look, why are you sending them here? And I said, look, we have a job to do. And I said, look, if it makes you happy, I'll go. Would you be okay about that? And the wives are very happy because if they're going to take anybody out, it'll be the boss, so that's all right. And the rest <laughs> of the team were okay because I thought, well, he's there. So we went over and we were a little bit, you know, of trepidation. But there were other airlines there that had started off. So we went around, we met a lot of people, talked to a lot of people. Um, and then um, one of the things we had to do is we were recruiting people to join the airline. So I thought, I'll go downtown to see my team and see how they're getting on. So it's kind of a funny story, really. But when I was there, I said, look, I want to go downtown. And they said, we have no special vehicles for you. And I said, what do you mean? I said, we normally have a special vehicle to bring people in and out. I said, that's all right. So I ended up in this Hyundai car that was about 20 years old. I had a Sri Lankan with me who was my head of um, airport training, Carnegie, great character. I had an IT guy with me as well. And we had two other people who were coming along to do the interviews. So we get in this car and we're driving out and... The airport check-in time was six hours before departure because you went through so many security checks. Going out of the airport, you didn't. You just got onto this highway. And as we're going along, the guy just suddenly sped up. We're going down about 100 kilometers an hour. The car's rocking all over the place. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, this is no man's land. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, they shoot across this highway. And I'm thinking, no one told me. <laughs> so <laughs> flew down to the green zone. And when you get to the green zone, you have all these security checks again. And there were sort of five lanes of traffic in a three-lane road. And I thought, well, if you want to take somebody out, this is where you do it. So we gradually got to the front of the queue, and there was an American officer there. And he looked in the car, and he says, who are you? Why are you here? And I explained. So he said, give me your passport. So he took the passport, and then he went away. Then another guy came out and said to me, get out of the car. I said, me? And he said, yeah, get out of the car. So I'm thinking, what's going on? So I get out of the car. And he walked me away, and he said, are you Okay. I said, yeah, I'm fine. What's up? He said, oh, we thought you'd been kidnapped because you're in a car with a Sri Lankan and three Arabs. Wow. And I thought, well, okay, that was pretty clever that the guy picked up on that very quickly. I said, no, no, we're all okay. And then we went into the green zone. We, we went to see the team doing the interviews and there's hundreds of people being interviewed because everybody was looking for a job. But they, you know, they did a great job with it. Then I came back because we stayed at the airport. That's basically where we had to stay. Um, and I was there for about three days. But the whole episode was, was a great learning um, opportunity for me to realize that it's always not as straightforward as it looks particularly when you go to some countries and you know when you're an airline and you're expanding you fly to a lot of places that don't have the facilities that you have in europe and a lot of challenges are out there in terms of the quality mm. of staff that you choose and also the learning you can bring to these people but um the guys do a great job and, and it was very successful and um yeah that, that was uh one of the more interesting trips that I went on. And you saying there about the challenges that anyway airlines face when they fly to fly a new route or whatever, this is kind of leads on to what we'll talk about a bit later on and challenges the airline industry is facing today, right? Um, so so you, you go from there, I believe you, you have a, a, a brief stint um, consultancy after this, right? And then back into Qatar. How did that happen then? Yeah, basically, I, I came up to retirement in Emirates, and um, I, I'd probably done as much as I could do there, really. And the team were so well functioning, I thought, okay, maybe it's time to go on, because I didn't want to get bored with it. That, that was the thing that, that troubled me. So I thought, I'll set up a consultancy, because so many people said, you should set up a consultancy. And I thought, great, I'll set up the business. And 
you know, I'll get loads of offers. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> you have to work really hard to generate business and to get people to come onto you and maybe to trust you as well. Um, so I was at that for about six months, had a website up. I was starting to get a lot of contacts. I was getting a few offers as well. And then I got a phone call one day from a headhunter who said, listen, I've got a great job for you. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. And it was to go and work for Qatar Airways based in Doha. So um, I said, yeah, OK, fine, I'll give it a run. So I went over to meet the president, uh, Akbar, um, great character and, and has a fabulous airline. So I went over to Qatar and basically they said to me, OK, can you help sort of reorganize the whole group that we have here? And they were an amazing group of people, very, very experienced, but just never had or hadn't been motivated or encouraged or helped. So um, while while I was there initially and figuring out what was going on, we went through the usual thing, mission, vision and values and a five-year strategy. And I wanted to see, OK, it worked there. Would it work in Emirates? Would it work in Qatar? And along the same lines, it was it was very successful. And a lot of things started to happen because of it. So doing a mission, vision and values and a five-year strategy, I think, is really the first thing that any leader of L&D should do so that everybody's on the same page. And then one of the guys, Hamanshu, uh, a really um, great character, very big into IT, latest technology. And he used to come and see me and say, listen, you know, have you seen this in virtual reality? Have you seen what they're doing now? And I said, yeah, it looks great, but is there anything out there? And we looked around to try and find something. Um, and eventually I found this game uh, on, on the, it was actually a game on the internet that you can use in virtual reality. Uh, it's and it's titled Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. And I thought, what's that about? And it was very clever. It was basically a very simple system where you put on a headset, you were given a series of instructions. So you had a handbook with about 20 pages of symbols, and you had the guy wearing the headset in a room where there's a suitcase in front of him. And when you open up the suitcase and turn it around, it's a bomb. And you have to figure out how to defuse the bomb, whether it's with wires, uh, symbols, numbers, which are all in the book. So basically the guys there in the room saying, come on guys, give me the, give me the information. I can see this squiggly line. What do I do? And they're looking at 20 pages thinking, well, we see a squiggly line. It might be that one. And, and if you don't do it within a given time frame, about five minutes, the room just explodes and it goes blank. So I tried that with a few people and everybody liked the idea. And then we actually built it into a game and it became a training game for communication. And we ran it with the whole team in L&D and everybody thought, wow, virtual reality is the way to go. Now, we couldn't just use that one-off system, and it would only have been limited to who we could have used it for. But then we found out um, that in Geneva, IATA, who is the governing body for airlines, International Air Transport Association, were working on a new virtual reality training program. So myself and Himanshu jumped on a plane, went over to see these guys, and it was amazing what they were working on. Now, to give some perspective of this, um, when somebody travels on an airplane and they land into an airport, they basically see the airplane land into an area, park up, get off on an air bridge, people get back on an air bridge, get on the plane and off it goes. But there's a lot more that goes on with it. And we call it a turnaround check. So when a plane comes in and it comes into that parking area, somebody's got to go out and make sure there's nothing out there that could get sucked into engines. Are all the equipment's in the right place because they're all marked out. And if something's in the wrong place, it could get sucked into an engine. Even a baggage container can get sucked in. And that does a lot of damage. And the average... Aircraft engine can cost anything from five to ten million dollars. So you break yeah. one of those, and you won't be very popular. Mm. So somebody has to go out and check all of that, and then you have to check the aircraft. They walk all the way around because if the aircraft has been damaged, if they don't identify it before the aircraft leaves, well, they might get blamed for having damaged the airplane. So it's a good check to do. 
And then you finally finish off by checking everything is safe around the airplane before she departs back out again. So many airlines struggle with this because the consistency is not there. And sometimes you're depending on handling agents to do the job, not your own airline staff. So I had to come up with this brilliant idea of doing a turnaround check in virtual reality. So you could move around the aircraft and they set up about 50 different problems that can occur on each phase of the turnaround check. So the first guy can go up, put on the thing and say, right, I can see a problem here, a problem there, I can see this. And he thinks, great, I'll tell the other guys when I take my headset off. But when they put the headset on, it's a different set of stuff. So it was absolutely brilliant. And because it's new technology, it has an amazing impact on, on everybody. So my problem was I had this amazing system that I could see real potential for. How do I get my organization to buy it? Because it wasn't cheap. So what I did is I, I did a deal with the IATA guy and said, look, give us a, a system and I want to test it out on the senior management. So I started off with the managers then I went to the senior managers then I went to the VPs, the SVPs, then I went to the chiefs. And then finally, I got um, the chief of, of uh, Qatar Airways to come and try it himself. And basically what I did is I put him into the scenario and said, right, you're at the airport and they're saying, wow, this is really good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I said, right, go and find the problems. And of course, some of them were able to do it and some weren't, but you helped them with it and you explained how it works. And everybody said, wow, this is really good. And I said, yeah, it is a great system, but I need some money. So they agreed to buy it. And then we had this fabulous system. And I'm thinking, okay, I have to justify this. What am I going to use it for? And then the head of airport operations came to see him and he said, Brendan, we've got a problem. A lot of our airplanes are getting damaged in outstations. And, uh, you know, how are we going to solve this? And I said, come to my office. And we set up the system. I said, right, try this. And he was an airport, a very experienced guy, absolutely super guy. He was blown away as well. And he says, we need this. So we built a three-day training program, part of which was to do the turnaround check. And the way we ran it is we got every station manager from around the network, there's 269 of them, over a nine-month period. And we said, okay, show us how you do your turnaround check. And what we discovered is that everybody had their own way of doing it. So what we did is we rewrote everything and said, right, new procedures, new processes, and this is how everybody should do a turnaround check. Because a lot of them complained, I haven't got time to do it, it takes too long. So we came up with a system that the whole thing could be done in about 15 minutes. And then we incorporated it across the network. And then over the period of the next 12 months, we reduced aircraft damage by 48%, and that equated to $8 million. So then I had my justification for spending the money, and the money we spent on it was just a drop in the ocean in comparison. What's really interesting is that there seems to be this thread of um, you always capitalizing on digital transformation or new tech as it comes in, but that it's not always smooth in terms of the adoption what yeah. advice would you offer to others around like you know picking up new tech and and, and then utilizing it and, and getting buy-in from from the wider business as well i think one of the problems that we face today is people say oh that's new i don't want to get involved with it i'll wait till it's proven well if everybody takes that approach we'll never figure out what's really good about this technology i mean to give you an example we we um introduced the, the system and it worked really well and then we started to look around and say is there anyone else producing good stuff in virtual reality and then we found the university of venice um were building a similar system but it was about evacuating people off an airplane during a fire which was to be used by cabin crew now, it's very hard to simulate that in a in real life environment because nobody likes you to burn down their airplanes 
But with this system, you actually can do all of this. And I was amazed when I put it on and I thought, wow, this is so realistic. And again, we went through the same process. We got some of the senior managers in. We brought the cabin crew trainers in and said, have a look and see what you think. And then they were in the process of going to buy that system. So with new technology, I would say, have an open eye about it. Now, go and see the organization that's running it and get them to show it to you. And have a think about it and get some of your other people maybe to go and have a look as well. And then collectively, you can say what you liked and didn't like about it. And then you can go back to the organization and say, look, can you tweak this? Can you tweak that? With IATA, they said to us, what do we need to tweak? What needs to be fixed? And we gave them a number of ideas of what they could do. And then they did it. And then, of course, the program became very successful. So I would say it's sort of a bit like a partnership. You work together to try and make this happen for the benefit of both sides. Because if they're successful, then you get better products. But I would certainly say when it comes to technology, don't close your eyes. And don't say to yourself, we can't afford it. Because that's the first thing everybody's going to say. They won't give me a budget mm. for it. Well, go and see it, see what it does. And if you can figure out how it's going to save your organization money, yeah, you'll have to fight for it, but at least you've got the metrics to back it up and say, look, I see an opportunity here. Because one of the biggest problems with people who work in L&D is when it comes to numbers, they're awful. <laughs> they don't like numbers. They don't like finance. You've got to get good at it. You've got to understand it so that at the end of the day, you're going to help yourself get what you need to be successful in your division. And, and over the, your time in the aviation sector as well, um, obviously to be had a bit of a rough patch recently, you know, with the pandemic um, as yeah. well. Where, where do you see the kind of major challenges now, particularly around, you know, training and, and retraining staff? Well, as we all know in, in, in any business, when times get tough, one of the first people to go are the trainers and the L&D division. You know, it, it's one of the short-sighted things you see in business all over the world, which is, is a shame. So what's happened is a lot of organizations have lost great people who've moved on to other industries, sadly. So now they're trying to regroup and trying to get people back in and trying to build up the training. Um, and it's happening very, very fast. So the problem is you're going to compromise. You know, you, you won't have the quality, but then maybe you have no choice. Um, I think in aviation today, that's the single biggest problem when it comes to learning and development is how soon can they get everything back on track and how can they make sure that the individuals involved are the right people delivering the quality that they need. And um, that, to me, is the biggest, biggest biggest single challenge. You were hearing all kinds of horror stories. I can't remember the airline now, but where execs were helping out with baggage handling during the kind of problems they were having uh, earlier in the year. Um, is that still going on then? Is this an ongoing problem for the next few years for the, for the uh, industry? I, I think to understand the business... Um, most airlines, not all, but most airlines use handling agents to manage their processes at airports. Even if they wear the airline uniform, they may actually not be airline staff. They could be handling agency staff. It's cheap and it reduces costs for the airlines. But the downside is you could have a guy that one minute is dealing with Ryanair and the next minute is dealing with a quality airline. But the mentality is still the low cost mentality. And that can be a big problem. And I think executives need to understand in the aviation business that you only get what you pay for. And I think, yes, they want to reduce costs because they've had a tough couple of years. But what they've got to do is say, okay, fine, this is what we'll accept for now. In a year's time, we need to upgrade that to the next level. And in two years' time, we need to get back to where we were originally. I think a lot of airlines are starting to think that way now, which is good. I'm glad to see it's happening in the business. Um, but the airlines that are saying, let's do it at the lowest possible cost are the ones that won't survive in the next five years. 
Yeah, I mean, there's been, a, I'd say, a lot of horror stories you've, you've heard coming out of there. We we met actually through a mutual contact that um, is from the sector and had told Alex and I this, the first chat we had in terms of having to train people quite quickly to get them back, you know, operational in all of these. Because I wouldn't imagine the airline industry's recovered fully anyway, has it, in terms of routes and and planes in the sky? Well, what's really interesting is, is demand is phenomenal at the moment. I mean, it's been really interesting and... and I mean, if you look at the president of, of Emirates, Tim Clark, I mean, he's, he's one of the key people in aviation. He knows what's going on. And he said all through COVID, when this is over, the demand will come back in a big way. And he's right. And I don't think there's any airline that hasn't had excess demand over the last six months. People have been locked up and kept at home for a couple of years. They want to get out. They mm. want to get back out and see the sun and see different places. So in terms of the business, the business is booming. The trouble is they haven't got the support mechanism in place in some airlines to to meet that demand, and, and it's hurting. And some of the, I don't, I don't want to be rude, but some of the not-so-good uh, airports, what they've done is they've said, right, we're going to put a cap on the airlines. They can't have more than X number of flights to this destination, which is absolute madness, because what they're doing is they're damaging the airline, not not the airport. Because if you find out your flights are being cancelled and you think, well, that's the airline that's done that because they're not managing it properly. Mm. It's actually the airport that are putting the caps on. And costs go up, right? Because the, because the demand and the supply is not. Exactly. And that makes it very difficult for the airlines who have had a tough couple of years. So, I mean, I'm optimistic that we'll get around this and in another two years we'll be back to where we were before. But there's a, there's a lot of problems out there at the moment. And airlines and airports are trying their best to, to resolve those needs. Um, but when you were talking about the senior management loading the baggage, that that was Michael O'Leary in uh, Ryanair. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to come on to like you, you come out now to run your own consultancy again. So if you want to tell us a little bit more about what you're up to now and, and do you continue to work with the aviation sector as well? Right. Okay, so uh, I did uh, two and a half years with Qatar Airways and I really enjoyed it, but it was time again to move on and I really wanted to try and get to grips with the consultancy side of things. So I set up my organization and I think within about three months, I had a major project with um, an organization based out of Zurich that uh, specializes in sport. Um, And they wanted a major um, change in culture of the organization for various reasons. So that was the first big project that we started to work on. and, And that went down really well. And the guys were saying, great, we want to go ahead with it. And then COVID hit us. And of course, you couldn't do classroom training during that process. So what they did, rightly or wrongly, is they went online with the concept and did it that way. And then when COVID was over, um, not not a lot happened in that respect, which was a shame because I think it would have been a lot of fun. Um, And then uh, more recently, I'm doing work with PwC. Uh, They're getting me involved in strategy and leadership stuff, uh, mainly around the Middle East. Um, so that's basically where we are at the moment. So it's starting to grow legs because now training budgets are being increased everywhere. I'm finding that it's not just aviation, but other areas that are looking for help and support. You talked earlier about kind of every time you, there were the three words, and I can't remember off the top of my head what they were, but uh, it's about the mindset sort of stuff. You're talking culturally. Is that your big belief? Is setting up the culture in that first sort of, five years that then enables these programs to have real effect well it's a combination of various themes okay but there's some key bits that need to be there but for for me when i build a five-year strategy 
we focus on the mission, vision, and values. Okay, now what that does, it gives everybody the opportunity to understand what it is that we're trying to achieve. It also gives them where we're going to try and achieve to get to. So this is where we are today. This is where we want to be. And how do we get there? So understanding all of that concept really helps because it gets everybody off to a flying start. Everybody's on the same page. Mm. Then what you do in between that is you look at your programs and see, are they relevant? Um, One of the big mistakes is if you have a training program that's been running for 10, 15 years, the reality is it's probably out of date. Mm. But people still run them because they've always done it that way and they're comfortable. So again, you've you've got to really look at everything that's happening within your training division. And, And the rule I used to have is if it's over two years old, review it and see, do we need it? And if we do need it, is it up to date? So, you know, with, with learning and development is a, very much an ongoing concept. Use technology where you can because that, that's important and it can help make it more interesting for your participants because just because the L&D guy is happy with the program doesn't mean that the participants are. And coming back to some of Alex's concepts, you've got to measure that. You've got to see how well received that program is, but not just a, a smile sheet, which, which a lot of organizations use and, yeah, everyone loved the course. So it's a great course. It doesn't work that way. What you've got to do then is measure the impact in the business. Has it changed behaviors? Has it changed culture? Has it improved and made easier what's happening at the other end? And is it improving it for the customer? If you get all of that right, then you know you're on the right track. But it is an uphill struggle, and it needs a lot of effort and a lot of passion from the L&D people. But get it right, and it's an amazing amount of fun. That's interesting with the evaluation side. I mean, I think you were saying it or alluding to earlier the perhaps that the L&D sector is not so fond of that. And maybe because it's quite hard to, to it is. quantify sometimes, you know? I mean, that was one of the biggest problems we had is how do you quantify it? Um, and it takes a lot of research and you need some really good p- people who understand numerics and analytics who can then build something around it to try and measure it from the other end. But, you know, as I used to say to people, if we can't justify what we do, then why are we here? And that that's really the hard part. L&D professionals are great at doing their job. They really are. But what they're not so strong at is understanding what happens at the other end when it goes back into the business. And that's where the focus needs to go into. Now, you may not be that type of character to, to understand that and be able to build that, but you can get people who can do it for you. And now nowadays, there's so many systems out there, IT systems, that can help measure the impact of training on the job. So, you know, use technology to help. But if you do an amazing program and you can show the amazing results that come into it, well, then your L&D budget will be protected. I mean, in one of my previous organizations, I had a, a boss who shall remain nameless. And his attitude was, if you don't use your budget, you lose it. So what was happening with us is that no matter how hard you try to use a budget, because you can't use it for the first three months because they're waiting for all the finance to be in place. And then the next three months, when you start to look at what you need, you don't know what the business needs. And towards the end of the budget year, that's when the business comes and says, well, I need this, I need that, deliver it. And then you suddenly find it's too late to put in the orders for the equipment and so on because it'll go into next year's budget. So we found that with this particular mentality of use it or lose it, in the end, we were just buying stuff just to fill up the budget so we wouldn't lose the budget for the next year. Very, very uh, short-sightedness. But sometimes you have that, you know, there's no perfect organisation. I was actually having a Zoom this morning at nine o'clock with a, with a client who was, we were joking actually, cause talking about year end and uh, how busy I got the end of last year with that client. And and uh, how quickly I got paid. It was fantastic. They did need their stuff. It's not like they did it completely wastefully, 
but it is amazing how quickly organizations can, can start moving when there's that kind of constraint or pressure. And again, I've had clients even with things like travel budget at the end of the year, they're, they're flying all over the world just to have meetings because they won't get the budget <laughs> next year. Yeah. Which is good for your sector. <laughs> I'm not a finance person and I'm sure financial people say, well, that's the right way to do things. But I'll, from experience, no, I, I think it just ends up at the end of the year, people are just buying left, right and centre just to mm. use up a budget. Crazy. Alex, I know you like to sort of wrap things up about kind of career sort of stuff and highlights. I'll, I'll leave that with you then just to wrap things up. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat, though. Thank you. Well, you mentioned, you know, L&D professionals and, and people there have obviously looked after large teams, small teams, done a lot of hiring as well. Um, what what are the kind of key traits that you look for, you know, in, in L&D professionals on your teams? Okay, so one of the issues, as I mentioned earlier on, is you sometimes find you get a team delivered to you as opposed to hire the team. So what you have to do is you have to rebuild them and you have to develop them. I mean, what, one of the things I was very big on is I, I loved sending my team to be developed on other programs. So I'd send them abroad to, to workshops. I'd send them to L&D conferences so that they became very aware of what was happening outside of our business. And they'd bring back those ideas and realize, you know, some of the things I was saying are actually not a bad idea, but at least they understood it from an outside perspective. When you're hiring somebody for L&D, um, I always make people give me a presentation. And people say, well, that's old school. You shouldn't do that. I said, no, I want to see what they're like when they're standing up and they're talking to a group of people and what, what they're going to do. I remember I was in America. We were trying to hire people in the U.S. to do some work in the U.S. And we had a whole day of interviews. So the first guy came in. Now, this was to train people on IT systems within the USA. So he came in and he said, uh, I'm an expert on PowerPoint, but I'm not going to use PowerPoint. I'm going to use a flip chart today. I thought, mm, OK. And he started working on the flip chart. And as anybody who's an L&D professional knows, the great thing about the slide is you have the information on the slide. And that guides to what you should be saying. This guy was trying to do it from memory. And halfway through, he lost his plot completely. And I said to him, tell me, why didn't you do the PowerPoint presentation? He said, oh, well, I'm an expert on PowerPoint, but I thought this would be a better way to do it. I said, but you've just ruined it. And, you know, none of us here would hire you because you, you've actually made a really bad presentation. And then another guy came in with all the technology. He had about five iPads and he handed them out to us and he said, I've synchronized everything, we're ready to go. And then he's off on his presentation and none of our iPads were working <laughs> because there was no Wi-Fi. And he never stopped to think, is there any Wi-Fi? So we would never have found that if we hadn't got people to come in and do a presentation. So I think for L&D professionals, start off first with getting them to do a presentation. Do they have the persona? Because not everybody can be a trainer. You need to have a certain personality. Um, the second thing I would look at is their passion. Are they really passionate about L&D? Because if they are, they'll come up with new ideas and new programs, which is important. And I think the third thing is the experience. How much knowledge does that individual have of the business? If he has limited knowledge, well, you need to spend a lot of time immersing him in the business or her in the business to make sure they get to understand it. I think if you work along those guidelines, then, yeah, you should come up with some good people. Oh, excellent. Some fantastic pointers there in terms of, you know, what people can be doing heading into that interview scenario as well in terms of, you know, preparation and, and make sure they know the stuff before, before they rock up, really. Yeah, I mean, that's the key. Don't try to be clever. We don't need clever people. We want good people. Yeah, yeah, great. 
Excellent. Well, thank you very much for sharing, you know, so much insight into your own career. But, but there's, you know, there's so many knowledge bombs there for, for any listeners to kind of pick up on. Where can listeners find out a little bit more about you or perhaps get in touch, you know, around your consultancy? They can connect with me on LinkedIn. And I also have um, a YouTube channel, Brendan Noonan at YouTube. Um, I've done a number of um, short videos, uh, leadership skills, strategy skills, customer service skills, mental health skills. They're only two or three minutes long, each of them. And some people find them very useful because it gives them a few ideas of some of the things to consider for themselves. Um, And then I'm getting a lot of very positive feedback about that. So find me on LinkedIn or find me on YouTube. So that was a great interview, Alex. I mean, uh, you sort of teed it up, really, in terms of the way that he approaches things and thinks about things in terms of metrics and stuff. Is that your key takeout, you'd say? Yeah, I probably agree. I mean, where do, where do we start? Um, I think Brendan outlined for me the importance of sales skills and narrative within L&D. You know, I can imagine him sitting in the boardroom easily winning L&D budget mm. because he ties it to tangible outcomes and key metrics. Uh, he's clearly an, an, an innovator and not afraid of implementing new technology either. Uh, I mean, he's talking about the story with with Qatar Airways. That was three or four years ago, delivering significant cost savings and contributing to safety standards. And when, from what I see, it, it still looks like people are still getting their heads around virtual reality. And I think the same sort of takeaway really is that I, and again, I guess having a video production company and going through quite a long period of time, certainly pre-pandemic where buy into video let alone tech was was quite a, a thing for L&D and training teams and stuff and um, his sort of way of looking at things embracing new tech and new ideas and working with those suppliers to hone stuff is it, just fantastic you know we've got a client that the, the, the lady that runs that is, is very much a forward-thinking person. We'll, we'll use things like, you know, AR, VR, and all kinds of different sort of tech uh, to make their learning so much better. And I think those sort of people are few and far between, truthfully. So um, refreshing to hear Brendan's take on that and a great interview, really enjoyed it. Who have we got next week then, Alex? So next week's guest is Victor Amoa. Uh, he's currently a senior learning and development consultant at Cushman Wakefield. And prior to that uh, was with John Lewis. So both those brands actually are synonymous with very high levels of, of customer service. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, really looking to delve into that with Victor and, and get some good learnings from it. Looking forward to that one, definitely. And um, again, as I said earlier, if you get time to rate, review, share, wherever you're listening to this podcast, it is much appreciated. Um, thanks for any of you guys that are getting in touch with emails and DMing us on um, LinkedIn. Again, it, it keeps us kind of uh, motivated to keep putting these out. And yeah, more to follow. So, the, you know, the more feedback we get, the better. And uh, if you've got any ideas or anyone that you think, you know, or if you want to be interviewed, you know, do get in touch. 